Well, our journey through the Gospel of Mark continues, and I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. And we find ourselves in the final week of Christ's life before he heads to the cross. Every move our Lord makes is strategically timed during the Passion Week so that his atoning death for our sins will take place on Passover. And as our Lord continues to make final preparations, he's also preparing his disciples for their future ministry and the launch of the church age that will begin at Pentecost, which now is only a matter of a few weeks away. With the church age comes a transition away from Israel's temple worship and sacrificial system to the supreme focus upon Christ and the perfect atoning sacrifice that he alone will provide on the cross. In our recent studies in Mark 11, we've learned much about the fig tree, which symbolizes Israel, even more specifically, Israel's worship that was taking place at the temple. On the outside, it looked spiritually healthy. We learned that the leaves reflected the external aspect of Israel's rituals and traditions. But when Jesus inspected it for fruit, when he looked at it for true worship, he found that the tree was barren. The lack of fruit reflected Israel's heart and that it was divorced from their obedience and worship. Israel's leaders and the high priests in the temple were focusing on an external righteousness that wasn't driven by true faith. As a result, a religious hardness of heart infected both the leaders and the followers as well. And they had been infected with much pride and self-righteousness. Even worse, this caused them to view Gentiles with contempt. The very people that they were being called to witness to. They turned the temple into a marketplace and they used it to extort money and took advantage of the exchange rates for foreign currency. They jacked up the prices exorbitantly when it came to the animal sacrifices. And the whole thing was a racket. And Jesus called them out on it. One time at the beginning of his earthly ministry in John chapter 2, the second time at the end of his earthly ministry in Mark 11. Instead of the temple being a house of prayer for all nations, it became a charade of external religious activity and corruption. How bad was it? Jesus told them that they had made it into a robber's den, quoting Jeremiah. And he condemned what he saw. He literally expelled what he was seeing from his sight when he expressed his displeasure. Like, he uses that same word for, for casting out demons. Get out of my sight. It was unpleasing to him because he knew that it was unpleasing to his father. And now it's Tuesday of the Passion Week, the day after our, our Lord's temple visit. And he and his disciples, we learned in the past, they stayed in Bethany, most likely for safety's sake, which was only a couple miles away from Jerusalem. And now they're headed back towards the great city, and Jesus will be confronted by the chief priests, the scribes, and elders. But before this encounter, 
Jesus has his disciples walk right past the fig tree so that they can see its destruction again. This is very important. Because it foreshadows the destruction of the temple. And now Jesus is going to share some words that will guide their worship and ours into the future. We'll start reading in verse 20. Mark 11, 20 through 25 says this in the NAS. Some of your Bibles have a verse 26, which I'm opting not to read. It's not in the best and earliest manuscripts. And you'll see it and notice it in your Bible translation that it's in brackets. And it was actually pulled from Matthew 6.15 at the end of the Lord's Prayer. And it was added by scribes. And it's not heretical, but it's also added. And so thus I am keeping it out of our study today. Verse 20. And they were passing by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. As I spent some time just looking and meditating on this passage this week, there were three words that kept rising to the surface. Faith, prayer, forgiveness. If I could summarize what Jesus just emphasized to his disciples in the passage that we just read, those three words rise to the top. In fact, two of the three are given as commands, which we'll uncover in our study. But the big compound question that needs to be answered is why did God the Holy Spirit lead Mark to record these words here, and how can the context help us? The context, as we're going to see, points us both backwards and forwards. Allow me to explain. Verses 20 through 21 point us back to the fig tree and to the temple worship which Jesus just condemned. The fig tree is now dead from the roots upward, and so is Israel's temple worship. There is a transition of temples that is taking place. Israel's temple was considered the house of God, and God's manifest presence was there in the Holy of Holies. We understand that. Now God's manifested presence is in the person of Christ. And this is why Jesus even referred to himself as a temple back at his first visit in John chapter 2, verses 20 and 22, when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this 
And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. All of this is related to dispensational theology. Dispensationalism is a method of interpreting history that divides God's work and purposes toward mankind in different periods of time. In other words, God relates to people in different time periods according to his purposes. For example, God related to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden differently than he related to Israel. God related to Israel differently before Christ's coming than he's now going to after he has come. We need to see this. With the church age being launched comes a new dispensation. In this way, the context of our passage points us forward. Verses 22 through 25 point us forward to the transition of worship that is going to take place. We have the luxury of knowing and understanding what the disciples do not yet know at this point. In just a couple days at the Passover meal, John chapters 15 and 16 let us know that Jesus speaks to his disciples and he talks to them about sending them a new helper, right? The Holy Spirit. After Christ's resurrection and ascension, God's manifested presence will now come in the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the new temples will be believers who will have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. This is a radical, absolutely radical transition. So much so that Jesus says in John 16, 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. There was going to be a lot to bear. Israel's temple is going to be smashed to pieces. Their spiritual leader and Lord is going to be crucified. And the entire future of the church will be launched on the backs of the apostles' leadership. Just a little weight to bear, don't you think? Just a little. A lot to bear. A lot. And so here, in the middle of this transitional time frame, we find ourselves with the Lord and his disciples. What words does he have for them? What takeaways does he have for us? There's a reason why these verses have posed many problems for pastors and theologians through the years. Some have used them to focus on faith, while others have used them to focus on prayer, and still others on forgiveness. After spending time in this passage, I could see how any one of these three could be presented as the emphasis. Faith, prayer, and forgiveness. All three are mentioned at least three times each in this passage when you survey it. So what is the main emphasis of the passage, if I can ask you? Is it faith? Is it prayer? Or is it forgiveness? Or are you going to take the, the, the easy way out and say, well, isn't it a combination of all three, Pastor John? I've come to terms with the fact that when I get up here on a Sunday, it's not going to be very well received if I say, I don't know. You know, to some degree, there comes an expectation for whoever stands behind this pulpit to exposit the word of God 
And there should be. There should be an expectation that the scriptures are going to be explained. But I also find myself in a tough spot because there are many notable preachers who post their sermons online. And what should happen if what I teach and emphasize differs from their point of view? And then you go and you listen to one of their sermons and then you're caught. See that rock and hard spot? I'm stuck between. You know what frees me from this dilemma? Can I tell you? I want you to know this. The Lord. The Lord lifts that burden from me because I spend time studying. I want you to know that I work hard. I want to have understanding. I'm, I'm constantly trying to pray and ask the Lord to help me and to, to make sure that I, that I cut it straight, that I get everything about him right, and I get everything about the application for us. I, I, I strive for that. And there's a second thing that really blesses me too. And it's your prayers. It's your prayers. And there, there are a number of you that email me or Facebook message me or text me to let me know that you're praying for me. And that encourages me greatly. It really does. It really does. And I want you to know that I can tell when people are praying for me and when they're not. And in a weird, strange way, I, I can tell when, when people are praying for me. I wanted to share this quote that a dear brother sent me this week that really fits well here. It reads, and, and part of the reason that I'm sharing this is because prayer is um, going to be something that we do emphasize and that Jesus emphasized and shepherds his disciples to do in this passage today. But this is the quote. When we are counting on our pastor to teach us, we know that God needs to work if we are to hear God's word. We see our pastor week by week. We know his weaknesses. And I know you know mine. We know when he's tired. And we know when he's had three funerals in the same week or when his children are sick. And all these things drive us to pray. But if much of our teaching comes through a podcast delivered by an apparently brilliant guy we do not know in a place we have never met to people we have never met, it is not quite the same. To put it bluntly, it does not matter to us if God showed up and addressed his people through his word when it was recorded. It does not matter what was going on in that church or even in the preacher's life. The only thing that matters is that the preacher produces the goods and we expect him to. We do not need to pray then. We just need to press play. The connection between our prayers and the sermon is broken. And when that happens, it is not easily fixed. That's a powerful quote and, and consideration. And, and if you allow me a moment, I want to take some time to shepherd my own heart and, and to shepherd yours as well. We must avoid a podcast mentality when it comes to the preaching of God's word. We must avoid, not podcasts, I'm talking about the podcast mentality, right? That the, that it's just the responsibility of the preacher to deliver the goods. There's no prayer. There's no relationship. How does that happen? How does that happen? Let me tell you. The... the the application is difficult. It's an easy answer. 
But the application is, is a little bit difficult. I pray for you faithfully. You pray for me faithfully. That's how it works. That's how God has ordained the church and the ministry and the preaching of his word that I would be praying for you, praying for your heart, praying for the receptivity, that your heart would be challenged by the word of God as I'm studying it, and you would pray for my heart and my heart preparation, and that God would be showing me um, the depth and clarity and understanding of his word. That's how it works. That's how it works. And I want you to know that both Isaiah and I, and whoever's teaching from this pulpit, whether in an equipping hour or if it's a guest preacher, we, we covet your prayers. We, we absolutely covet your prayers. And we also want to let you know that you are thought of in the process. We're thinking about questions that you might have. We're thinking about the responses that you might have to the Word of God. And we, we want to shape our sermons accordingly. And it's times like this when God's Word really challenges us that our prayers together allow us to gain understanding and insight into His Word. And so as we look at this passage, the context is key. And again, it points us both forward and backwards. After condemning the fig tree and temple worship, Jesus shares what I believe are three essential components of fruitful worship in contrast to the dead spiritual worship that he just witnessed and condemned at the temple. These are shepherding words from our Lord, preparing their hearts for the dispensational transition that will soon be taking place. What does he challenge them with first? Look at verse 22. And Jesus replied, saying to them, have faith in God. I made this the, the first point in your outline. I put it in quotes because it comes straight out of the text. And Jesus here is literally saying, have faith in God. No confusion. It's direct statement. And we need to keep in mind that the cursing of the fig tree was the first and only miracle of destruction that the disciples had ever witnessed. All other miracles involved Jesus healing or restoring someone or creating something in abundance. Naturally, this caused the disciples to question what they had seen. In the parallel account in Matthew, it even says that they asked the question, how did the fig tree wither all at once? We remember, we talked about even in the context, when they were going over to the tree and they saw leaves on it, they were expecting to see some, some fruit, right? And that the Lord would probably take that fruit and then make even better fruit, right? Like he did with everything. But they saw that there was no fruit on it either. And so they're piecing all this together as they go. And much is going to be better understood in time when it, when it comes to them knowing what's taking place. And Jesus knows this well. But what words does he have to share with them despite their ignorance of what the future has in store? Take hold of your faith in God. Have faith in God. These are surreal words considering what the immediate future holds. And I want you to think about them from this perspective. 
when you see your master and Lord handed over to be crucified in the next 72 hours, have faith in God. When you see him suffer and die and the world goes in to absolute darkness, take hold of your faith. When you see the empty tomb and you're questioning what has happened, have faith in God. I love the fact that Jesus undeniably connects them to the complete object of their faith here. The command is clear. And it doesn't come simply as take courage or have faith, like a generic sympathy card at Walgreens. But Jesus adds in God, which is good for us to take notice of. It was just back in Mark 8, you will recall, where Peter made the great confession, which in the account of Matthew 16, when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? What did Peter say? You're the Christ. You are the Son of of the living God. Using that rationale, Jesus would have been justified saying, have faith in me, or take hold of your faith in me. Yet he draws upon the fullness of the Godhead here. And the disciples were no different than us. Perhaps they would be tempted to put their faith in other things when things got difficult. Maybe they would be tempted to put faith in themselves or in other people. Maybe they would trust in their circumstances or the things that they could control. Sound familiar? No different than us. Like Peter, James, and John, would they be tempted to go back to fishing? Jesus is preparing them. Be ready. Have faith in God. And to some degree, we're just like they are, aren't we? As the pages of history unfold, as the stories of our lives are being written, there's so much that we don't know that's coming our way. We're right where they are. There's so much that we don't know. Some of you are in the midst of unfolding circumstances. And they're going to bring you to a very vulnerable place. It could be a dying parent or loved one. The sudden loss of a pregnancy due to miscarriage. Some other major life-altering circumstance. These are all the vulnerable places that we can be led to. Yet... The words of the Lord still apply to our hearts. What are they, church? Have faith in God. Will you and I take hold of our faith? Or will we merely profess faith, but not possess faith by actively holding on to him and to his word? It wouldn't be a sermon for me without a J.C. Ryle quote and listen to the insight that he shares about this verse. The faith here commended must be distinguished from that faith which is essential to justification. 
in principle, undoubtedly, all true faith is one and the same. It is always trust or belief. But the object and operations of faith, in the object and operations of faith, there are diversities, which it is useful to understand. Justifying faith is that act of the soul by which a man lays hold on Christ and has peace with God. It is a special object. Its special object is the atonement for sin which Jesus made on the cross. The faith spoken of in the passage now before us is a grace of more general signification, the fruit and companion of justifying faith, but still not to be confounded with it. It is rather a general confidence in God's power, wisdom, and goodwill toward believers. And its special objects are the promises, the word, and the character of God in Christ. End quote. If I can summarize what Ryle has just said, it would be this. There is saving faith and there is sanctifying faith. I, almost, I, was, I was tempted to call that stretching faith, growing faith, right? Both involve belief and trust. Both point us to the sufficiency of God. Our saving faith initiates our sanctifying or stretching or growing faith that continues to draw us back, just as Ryle states, to God's power, wisdom, goodwill toward believers. And its special objects are the promises, the word, and the character of God in Christ. And how encouraging it is for us to see God's work through faith in the lives of believers that have gone before us. And we see an example of this in Hebrews chapter 11, otherwise known as the hall of faith, right? The great, the great list of of those who have followed the Lord in faith. Take some time to read and meditate on Hebrews 11 this week. We don't have time to go there. But just if you haven't read Hebrews 11 or if it wasn't even on your radar, or maybe you've never even read it before, take some time to, to read and see the hand of God through faith and the impact that it had on his people. Let it encourage you. But what I want us to see next is how the Lord continues to shepherd and prepare his disciples' hearts. He could have shepherded them about an, any number of different items that, that could have focused on them having faith in God. He could have talked about God's character or God's person, as Ryle suggests. Jesus could have discussed God's purposes or God's promises what does Jesus talk about? He talks about prayer. He talks about prayer, which leads us to the second point in our outline. Let prayer be the litmus test of your faith. And here we have a proverb in verse 23, followed by the principle in verse 24. Let's start with the proverb. Look at verse 23. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, 
but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Entire books, literally, have been written on this verse. Many spend time speculating on which mountain Jesus is referring to. Some believe that the symbol of a mountain may have been suggested by the horizon to the south of Jerusalem that is dominated by a peak in the shape of a volcano which comes into view as one reaches the crest of the Mount of Olives from the village of Bethany. This peak is actually the fortress of Herodian, one of many citadels built by Herod the Great for refuge in case of war or rebellion. Herod had literally removed an adjacent hill, the base of which is still visible today, in order to surround the citadel of Herodian. Some believe this is the mountain to which Jesus is referring. Others believe it was the Temple Mount that was in sight as Jesus shared these words with the disciples. A mountain being cast into the sea, this would foreshadow the temple's coming destruction. And I'll admit on the surface, this seems plausible. But what application would these words have now if the temple is already destroyed? Got to think about it from that angle. Then there are historians that have made discoveries in rabbinic literature that reveal that a rabbi who could remove noted difficulties of interpretation was spoken of as a remover of mountains, which seems to align more with the context. Since Jesus and his disciples never performed any physical miracles like this, it seems highly unlikely that these words are meant to be taken literally but should be taken figuratively. Just like when Jesus spoke of it's easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, the emphasis was put on the impossibility of that, right? And the need and a work that only God could do. And so in a similar vein, moving a mountain and casting it into the sea is reflecting an impossible situation from man's point of view. This is what it means. Now that we have an understanding of the proverbial aspect, let's turn to the principle of prayer that Jesus shares in verse 24. And some of this is even a reiteration of the end of verse 23. But we're going to focus on them here in in 24 since they're mentioned again. What should the disciples do when they are facing difficulty or seemingly impossible circumstances. It's what Jesus says in verse 24. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. There's an inevitable connection between faith and prayer that Jesus wants the disciples and you and I to see here. When difficult and uncertain times come, and they will, for the disciples, they already came and passed, and for us, they're going to come, what is going to happen? We're going to be tempted to doubt. We're going to be tempted to be afraid. It's true. And Jesus has spent three years helping them see this connection between their faith and between their fears. A lot of time. 
And we've gotten to witness some of those just even in the Gospel of Mark, like in Mark 440 when they were stuck in the middle of the, the boat out on the Sea of Galilee and the storm hits. And Jesus is right there with them in the boat. And they are doing what? They are freaking out. They are panicking. What's going to happen? We're, we're, we're perishing. Lord, wake up. Don't you care? Don't you care? And we see what happens. And there are many times like these. But soon, very soon, Jesus is not going to be with them in person. Not like he is now. And if you think about it, all they had to do before was just cry out like they did. The same way when Christ startled him when he was walking on the water and he said, do not be afraid, it's me. Then, then, then you have Peter who wants to, you know, wow, we can walk on water? This is amazing. Let me try. Then he tries and then he starts to sink and he yells out, Lord, save me, right? Right? And you recall what the Lord said to him after that happened? You of little faith, why did you doubt? And so there's this lesson, you know, this lesson on the correlation be, between faith and fear, between faith and doubt, as the Lord disciples the, the men all the way through the Gospels. And, and he wants us to see it. He's discipling us. He discipled them for three years. Right? Three plus years. He wants them to see it to see this, and he wants us to see it as well. Jesus is letting us all know that doubt and fear must drive us to our knees every time, and that prayer is the litmus test of faith in God. That is what he's letting us know right here. A litmus test is used in science labs to determine the acidity of a concentration when litmus paper is dipped into a concentration, if it is acidic, then it will change colors that, that measure the pH and determine the strength and presence of acid or alkaline. Anyone ever have that experience of doing that uh, litmus test? Okay. If there is no acid, then there will be no real change. <laughs> what a good picture for us to keep in mind. If God were to test your faith, if he were to apply spiritual litmus paper to your walk, what would he find? What would it indicate about your strength of faith and reliance upon him in prayer? What would it say about your personal relationship with him? I'm just asking you to consider that for a moment. I'm doing the same thing. I had to do the same thing for my own heart in, in the study this week. What does it say about me? How am I relying? Is there a measure of faith? And it's so interesting, you know, just even living in the, you know, the lifestyle creep culture that we're living in and time is, it's just pressure. It's just time. It's time. How am I going to find time to do this? Time, time, time. When am I going to find time to pray? That's not an option for a believer. 
It simply is not an option for a believer. In fact, that's one of the things to think about as we, we, we test and we take that spiritual litmus paper and we apply it to our lives, that, that, that we, we test to make sure that there is some line of communication that's taking place between us and God. And this is what 2 Corinthians 13, 5 can be applied in this way, just even as it relates to authenticating whether we have real faith or real relationship with God. It could be measured through prayer. Like, is there, is there really something there? Or do I just keep falling back into sin over and over and over again, and there's nothing really that's upholding me by faith? There's nothing that's leading me back to repentance again, we would need to test ourselves and ask that question, is my faith real? Pull on it. Be challenged by it. Don't settle and don't think that, oh, sometimes, yeah, I pray before I eat. That's great. Give thanks. And we're also reminded in God's word that in all things we give thanks, right? Not just when we eat, Right? Our heart to pray is a choice to trust in Jesus despite everything to the contrary. And to expect from him what cannot be expected from anything else in the world. Faith believes enough to ask. And asking is rooted in the conviction that God intends that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? And that we're fulfilling his will. And so I hope I've applied a little bit of weight to your heart, just even with that litmus test, because I applied it to my own heart too. Is my faith real? Is your faith real? Is it a strong faith? Is it a relying faith? James Edwards shares, faith is more certain of God's steadfastness than of human inabilities and vicissitudes. Therefore, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you have received it, and it will be yours. This expression reflects Semitic thought in which the certainty of a future act based on the trustworthiness of God can be referred to in the past tense. Both faith and prayer stand in continuity with God's character and in conformity with his will. End quote. That's what that verse is saying. It, it, it is like if, you, if you've seen God answer prayer for you in your life in great measure and you're bringing something to him, you can pray, Lord, I know you're going to take care of this. Lord, I know you're going to lead, lead us through that. That is the place where a number of you are in this room as you have been walking with the Lord for years and you have seen your faith tested. And he has led you through it time and time again. And some of you who might be younger in the Lord... Maybe your relationship is brand new, just getting off the ground. You're still, you're still testing. You're still testing your faith. Not in justification, but in sanctification. Right? In your, in your growth. Well, if you're currently struggling in your prayer life, or if you would like insights and in how your communication with God can be strengthened, I have good news for you. Pastor Isaiah is actually going to be teaching equipping hour today in alignment with this message. And uh, that was his own idea to, to do that. 
that we would have an opportunity just to even spend more time talking about what a healthy prayer life looks like and how we can continue to grow in our communication with God. Praying to God with ministry, you can see right back there on the banners, is a ministry pillar for our church. And it cannot be a ministry pillar for our church until it's a ministry pillar of our very own heart. Does that make sense? I'm with you. We're all in this. We're all in it together. Well, our time's running out, so on to our third and final point. Jesus shares three essential components of fruitful worship in contrast to the dead temple worship, which he just condemned. First, he shepherds us to have faith in God. Second, he wants prayer to be the litmus test of our faith. And thirdly, he wants us to understand the necessity of forgiveness. Look at what Jesus says in verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Feel the urge to reread that again because there wasn't good fluidity when I read it. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. I feel better. Thank you for... Here, the context of forgiveness is in direct connection to prayer. If the focus was merely forgiveness, then that might require an entire separate sermon. But it's, it's connected to prayer. And why does Jesus require seeking forgiveness before praying? If verse 23 is the proverb and verse 24 is the principle, verse 25 could be called the prerequisite. Harboring sin and unforgiveness in the heart impacts our prayers and our ability to worship God. Perhaps you've had that experience when there's a breakdown in a personal relationship between you and someone in your family or someone in the church. Perhaps your spouse, right? And you're just offset and there's, the relationship needs to be reconciled. And then you come here on a Sunday morning and you're trying to worship God sitting right next to that person or with that person in view. Can that take away from your worship? It can. It can. God wants all your worship without distraction. And this is the very reason why the Lord offers the words that he does in Matthew 5, 23, 24, by saying, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. God wants all of our worship, he, didn't, he doesn't want us distracted by, by sins and, and, and the iniquity that can plague us. And the same is true when you pray. Sin and broken relationships quench the spirit and hinder our prayers from being heard. And this is why God told rebellious Israel in chapter 1, of Isaiah, that if you regard iniquity in your heart, I will not hear your prayers. Isaiah 115 says, So when you spread out your hands in prayer, 
I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Even though you are saying, Lord, Lord, please, please, Lord, Lord, please, 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 hear me, please. You have iniquity and there's a fracture. He says what? I will not hear you. And then you know what he says in the very next verse? In 116, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. He pushes us towards repentance. And Israel knew this. And standing to pray was the common posture of the day. We have record of people kneeling and, you know, being prostrate on the ground, praying as well. But the, 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 the common stature was to stand and pray. And we even see examples of that at the Wailing Wall of Jerusalem today as Jews stand there and they, they pray to God. And this is why Jesus found it so disturbing when he considered the worship that was taking place at the temple. Remember, at the beginning of the message, I shared with you that this passage points backwards and it also points us forwards as we find ourselves between dispensations. It all ties together. The temple was supposed to be a place of fruitful worship, a house of faith, a house of prayer, where forgiveness and the atonement of sin was celebrated, but instead it turned into a place of pride and corruption where Israel even began to look down upon those from other nations. And I was trying to think of a, something and th that would tie this all together that would give us just kind of a view of what their worship looked like. And I found one, a snapshot in Luke 18, and it's familiar to you. So you don't even need to turn there. But I want you to see what it was all about. The publican and the Pharisee, right? When Jesus describes this and says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The difference between these two men and their worship at the temple can be measured by their faith, by their prayer, and their view of forgiveness. The Pharisee, he had faith in himself, he, he was filled with self-righteousness. It wasn't the righteousness of God through faith. It was a self-righteousness that exalted self, just as Jesus warned about at the end. And his self-righteousness led him to even pray to himself. He viewed others with contempt and was judging their worship. The tax collector knew that only God was righteous and truly prayed directly to God. He knew he needed God's mercy and forgiveness. 
And this was the fruitful worship that God desired to see in the hearts of everyone who came to the temple. But sadly, it was all pharisaical and fruitless. In the end, Christ's shepherding words to his disciples apply to us today and point us forward now into the church age. How can we, you and I, give God fruitful worship? May we have faith in God. May prayer be the litmus test of our faith. And may we understand the necessity of forgiveness, both in life and in ministry. That's how we give him fruitful worship, church. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we bow our heads, thanking you for the privilege to rally around the word of truth, thanking you for the way that you have used it and guided us during our time, thankful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to help us to see things with greater clarity, And I'm thankful, Father, that we have the opportunity to consider really a very unique time with the disciples as they really are in between dispensations. And yet the Lord uses words that point backward and point forward as it relates to elements or components of of true and fruitful worship. I pray, Father, that your word did not fall upon hardened hearts or deaf ears today. I pray that where our hearts have been challenged about our line of communication with you, that you would help us to grow in our, our, our prayerfulness, help us to take heed to the things that Pastor Isaiah, that you have burdened his heart to share with us during second hour. And we pray, Father, that if there is anyone here today that has never truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, that they would use today as the opportunity to completely fall upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to cling to him in faith, to renounce any self-righteousness or pride or concept of thinking that they're a pretty good person when your word teaches us so clearly the opposite. Only perfect people go to heaven and we have to be made perfect by that righteousness that is made available to us through the atoning work of your son. So I pray for that soul. I pray for all the souls of the lost in our family that you would be drawing them to saving faith and that you would even be using the launch of this week as we head into Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday to draw them that they would come and they would hear the gospel preach and see that it aligns with the very words that we have been trying to share with them since we have known you. Thank you, Lord, for this study. Thank you for the privilege. We continue to walk by faith, not by sight. Help us to do that as we sing the song to you.